So come on, John. Thank you. Um, the first thing, technical issues. We got the whole headset all figured out and then realized somehow <laughs> these have to go on or my notes are worthless. So, and I can't, now I can't take them off. <laughs> so you're all fuzzy. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, we were here for a lot of years in seminary. I crammed three semesters into seven or eight years, something like that. The accelerated program for gifted students. Um, or at least that's what I like to call it. And uh, this church will always be a little bit of home. And it's, it's cool to have you all be our sending agency and to have that kind of connection with a local church. Let's just open with a word of prayer. God, in the garden, you told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we know your dream was a planet full of worshipers who were in communion with you and with each other, loving you and loving their neighbor. You know that was the original plan, and we messed it up pretty good. And so Christ came, the new Adam, and made reconciliation possible. And we just read the Great Commission where right before he left, he told his followers, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so I pray this time we would be busy about getting it right and filling the nations with worshipers who obey everything you've commanded, who love God, who love their neighbor. Um, help us even today as we uh, look at some passages of Scripture to contemplate what your role for us is in that great commission, those marching orders for the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I also grew up in a Grace Brethren church. I guess we're Karis Fellowship now, but um, we were Grace Brethren then, and I can remember going to mission conferences as a little boy, and the Great Commission that we read was always, like, front and center, and I loved it because we'd go see all the missionary display tables, and there were missionaries from Africa and South America, and they had all these exotic uh, things from exotic places. I think one year, if I remember correctly, and it's been a long time, but somebody had like a stuffed sloth, and to an eight-year-old kid, that was just like, wow. And I got the impression that the Great Commission was, like Matthew's gospel says, go to all nations, get out there and go. And I got the impression that, like, to be faithful to the Great Commission required uh, jet fuel and language school. And like either as a little boy, I'm thinking, well, is God going to call me to some jungle in Africa or some faraway place to be a missionary so I can fulfill the Great Commission? Or do I just be back in the States and my role is just to go to missions conferences and, you know, get mission letters and maybe write checks and you know, like, there, there's always, in my experience as a young person, been this focus on going. Now, I don't want to minimize the role that cross-cultural missionaries who go to other places have in the Great Commission, because I am one. Um, I can remember when we were at this church, 
living in Fairlane Trailer Park. And I remember my wife coming into the trailer with a letter from CE National about Urban Hope. And it was the beginning of God working in our lives and calling us to the inner city. And we didn't go to Philly, but we ended up in Chicago. And I can remember um, all the excitement of getting called and going and becoming a career full-time missionary. But I don't think the foundation of reaching the nations was ever intended to be limited to the people that would go cross-culturally. I don't think that's the main force for how the gospel reached the Roman world in the first century. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I've become convinced that the gospel reached the nations not because a few people uprooted their lives and went far away and learned another language. I'm convinced it was ordinary men and women making disciples in their community. Ordinary men and women involved in a local church like this that were making disciples in their community. And today I want to look at the, gospel, or the Great Commission as Luke records it. A little bit different than Matthew records it. And then I want to look at the book of Acts, where Luke kind of gives us a, a first century history of how the church went about obeying the Great Commission. And as I studied this, I was surprised it didn't fit my childhood notion of the Great Commission simply being sending a few special people overseas to learn a new language and take the gospel to unreached people. It's much bigger than that. It may sound heretical, but while the Apostle Paul gets credit for expanding the church across the Roman Empire, I don't think the, the, the early church kind of conquered the Roman Empire because of Paul or Peter or John or any of the apostles. I think it was thousands of ordinary people whose names we don't know who followed the Great Commission by making disciples. So, I'm going to read the two great commissions that Luke records. Um, one is in the book of Luke. Luke wrote Jesus' biography. And at the end of his biography, he's getting ready to go up to heaven, and he gives the great commission. And then in the book of Acts, the history of the church, Luke records it again. Because this is the be- it was the end of Jesus' ministry, but the beginning of the church. So Luke 24, 45 to 49. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 to 8, on one occasion he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The first thing in this that blew my mind when I noticed it is in Luke's gospel, he never tells them to go. He actually told them to stay. Uh, in, in both of these, in Luke 24, 49, he says, stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. In Acts 1, 4, he, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, but that's only temporary. They're only supposed to stay until the Holy Spirit shows up because you can't do the Lord's work without the Lord's Spirit. So once the Holy Spirit shows up, then they can go. But I got to thinking about this. Why did he make them wait for the Holy Spirit to show up? As Jesus was ascending into heaven, the Holy Spirit could have descended at the same time. They could have high-fived in the clouds. The Spirit could come on them, and they could go to the nations, right? But he made them wait. He said, stay in the city. If you think about it, it was because God had a plan thousands of years earlier for this very moment. God had set up the Jewish calendar and the Jewish feast days so, then a few, so that in a few weeks, Jews from all over the world would be in Jerusalem. And God didn't want them to get, go take off all over the place and go to the nations because God knew the nations were coming to them. Acts 2, 5-6 says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a loud, large crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. You, you may know the rest of the story. 3,000 people come to faith on that day from all over the world. Sometimes God doesn't send you to the nations because God's bringing people to you. And he doesn't need you in Asia or Africa. He needs you in Warsaw because he's got disciples to make in Warsaw. And he might even bring disciples from Asia and Africa to Warsaw. Or, or people to disciple. If you get my emails, you know that re recently in my ministry, I've gotten a chance to share the gospel with some young men from the other side of the world. God didn't send me to them. He didn't make me learn a new language. He brought them to Chicago, and we crossed paths, and they, we got to talking, and we talked about each other's lives, and we talked about, pretty soon they were asking questions, what do Christians believe, and I get to share the gospel with them. I've never traveled overseas, I've never had a passport, but who knows whether my act of faithfulness in Chicago could impact the other side of the world, and it's the same for you here in Warsaw. If you want to begin filling the Great Commission, rather than get totally focused on the other side of the world, start here. You have opportunities in this church with children's ministry and Sunday school and small groups to make disciples. You have opportunities in your neighborhood. I was so thrilled to see Stephen Gates here, because when we lived in Fairlane Trailer Park, his trailer was right out that way. And we met Stephen, and he started coming to the Wednesday night boys program that I was involved with at church, and he's still here. And so there are disciples to make in this town. Probably some of you, like all of you that have small children, have disciples to make in your family. There are others of you maybe have uncles and aunts, moms and dads, whatever, people in your family that don't yet know Jesus. We have disciples, we have disciples to make right where we are. When you think about the Great Commission, they're all gathered in Jerusalem, and Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, first of all, it's fascinating to me that they were his witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth ever, even before they left, because God brought them there. But also, we are the uttermost parts of the earth. North America is farther away from Jerusalem than any of the disciples could have even imagined. And so when we're making disciples here, Peter's looking down from heaven going, yep, 
the gospel got to the ends of the earth, and they're still doing it. But we feel like, oh, I'm not legit unless I go far away. Another thing I found fascinating, it was only a temporary stay, right? Just stay till the Holy Spirit comes. So the Holy Spirit comes down, 3,000 people get saved, now they're free to go, right? They can launch all over the world. But they didn't. They stayed in Jerusalem. Were they disobedient? I've heard people suggest that, but I want to respectfully disagree. The Great Commission wasn't make converts. It was make disciples. And at Pentecost, 3,000 converts are made. But the Great Commission was teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That happens, that takes a little longer than one sermon that Peter preaches on one day. And so, far from disobeying the Great Commission, I think they stayed in Jerusalem because they realized we've got a lot of baby Christians, we've got a disciple. We're not finished yet. And I, but I've heard people say they're, they're, they were disobedient, you know, Acts 1-8, go to all the world, and then Acts 8-1, or Acts 8-1, it talks about when they did eventually scatter, it says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. This would have been Stephen's martyrdom. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. I've heard people say that God brought persecution to scatter them because they stayed in Jerusalem and they didn't go. But, like I said earlier, I think they were busy in Jerusalem making disciples. Why did persecution come? Was that God's intervention? I think if we look at what Jesus said in John 15, it's pretty obvious. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Jesus didn't say, you better be on mission or God will have to send persecution to make you get on mission. He said, persecution's coming, folks. That's just ordinary circumstances for my followers. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. I suspect that in Acts 1 through 8, God didn't intervene to bring persecution. God intervened to hold persecution back. So they could take these 3,000 new baby believers and disciple them and teach them so that, as it says um, in John 8, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The day after Pentecost, probably those 3,000 people weren't ready to preach the word. They were still figuring this out. But God in his sovereignty held persecution at bay, and then when the church was ready and was able to handle it, he allowed something that's totally ordinary, totally be expected, to scatter his people and move them around. That's the second thing I want us to notice is that God, a lot of times, doesn't use supernatural calls and vision to send us places. He uses the ordinary circumstances of life. You get a new job opportunity or a job transfer and you move. You go somewhere for college. You get married and you move closer to your 
spouse's family. Um, you, you move to take care of your ailing parents or you retire and you decide to go somewhere where it's more affordable. These are all just ordinary reasons why people all over the world move. And there are also re- ways that God moves people around to make disciples where he wants to. In Acts 17, 26 and 27, it says, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. And so, um, God moves people to us, and sometimes he uses ordinary circumstances to move us to people. Fascinating thing, the, the young men I told you about that I've been able to share the gospel with in Chicago, God didn't just use an educational opportunity to bring them to Chicago. He used ordinary circumstances to connect me with them. You see, in 2008 or 9, the economy tanked, and our support went down, and it was kind of a crisis. And so one of the ways that God provided out of that was I took a second job. And I work on weekends, uh, front desk security in an apartment building downtown. These young men are my coworkers. And I met them not because I moved to Chicago as a missionary, but because I took a job as a security guard. God has called me as a full-time missionary to make disciples. He's also set me up to be a part-time security guard who's still called to make disciples. And so wherever the ordinary circumstances of your life take you, whatever job it puts you in, whatever neighborhood it puts you in, every time I come back, there's some people at this church that aren't here anymore because life has moved them on somewhere else. And there's new people that have come in. God uses all of that to put us in places where we can make disciples. One other thing I want to notice, uh, Paul gets the credit for being the first great missionary and taking the gospel all over the Roman world. But I'm convinced, I'm becoming convinced that Paul did more to expand the church by trying to destroy it than he did when he tra- went on his missionary journeys. In Acts 8.1, Paul tried to destroy the church and scattered thousands of missionaries. They weren't full-time paid missionaries, but they were, it says everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. When Paul was a full-time missionary, he was one guy with a few companions that could be one place at a time, and he wrote letters which impacted. I mean, again, greater missionary than I'll ever be, but God even used Paul's persecuting of the church to launch thousands of ordinary people around different regions to preach the gospel and make disciples. So, what about those of us who are called to be full-time missionaries, to, to go on, or, or just to go on short-term trips? Is all that legit? Are short-term trips legit? Is full-time missions legit? Or can we all just do it where we're at? And I found both of those in the book of Acts. How does the gospel get to Ethiopia? God doesn't send a missionary to Ethiopia. God sends Philip on a short trip down to the road to Gaza, where he runs into the Ethiopian eunuch and shares the gospel to make out. Ethiopian eunuch goes home. Philip goes on to the next thing. We don't even know how long that short term, whatever, that short trip was. Maybe just a day. But the gospel ends up in Ethiopia. And then there's the case of Peter, who gets called to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile Roman from Italy, which was cross-cultural, but it says his trip was a few days. And by the way, he goes on a cross-cultural mission trip as a Jew to reach a Gentile 
and it took a bunch of supernatural visions to get him ready. Cross-cultural ministry can be hard work and can take a lot of preparation. But it was definitely a short-term trip, and it was, and it was used by God. Finally, in Acts 13, 1-3, we see the first full-time missionaries sent out. It says, In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Nowhere in this passage does it say, Now at the missions conference at Antioch, they were praying about who the full-time missionaries would be. Um, Full-time missionaries didn't exist at this point that we're aware of. So it sounds like this is just a church that's busy making disciples in Antioch. And the leaders get together, and there's prayer, and there's fasting, and God interrupts a prayer meeting. Holy Spirit interrupts and says, these guys over here, I got a job for them. And then that church, hearing the word of the Holy Spirit, hearing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, sends them off, and that's where we get all of Paul's missionary journeys. And of course, not just Paul, there's Paul and Barnabas, eventually they split, and Barnabas is, is going on, on missionary journeys. Um, but I'm convinced, if this church is busy making disciples in Warsaw, using the ordinary circumstances of life, using the ministries of this church to make disciples, and they're serious about prayer and fasting and worship, occasionally God's going to interrupt a prayer meeting and say, okay, this is how I want you to be involved globally. Or this young person right here, I've got a special mission for them that's going to require them to move and maybe learn a language and, you know, get further training. But it starts with a church that is busy making disciples that is busy being faithful to the Great Commission right where they're at. Just wrapping it up, like, I don't want to dis, again, I don't want to dis cross-cultural missionaries because I am one, and I do think it's legitimate. It's always been a part of the plan of God. There are still places in the world where there is no church to make disciples, and somebody's got to go there and learn the language. I've got friends that do tribal missions, and somebody's got to go there and learn the language and take the gospel to a place that has never been before. And there's also places in the world where the church is struggling and, and they could use encouragement. Oftentimes, you know, on Paul's missionary journeys, most of the places he went, he would have run into people who were saved at Pentecost and then later went home. But part of his incredible job was to take a few, maybe a few little Jewish believers and encourage them and strengthen them and help them figure out what church looks like because this was all brand new and also help them figure out how to not only just reach the little other Jews in their Jewish community, but how to reach the Gentiles. He became the apostle of the Gentiles, and how Jew, and he writes a lot about how Jew and Gentile become one in the church. So there's all kinds of cross-cultural roles for full-time missionaries and leaders. But I think the foundation is what happens here in the local church. It, it, that sounds a little scary for some, and I gotta be honest, as a full-time missionary, it's a little scary to say because I know how desperately I need people praying for my ministry, 2020 especially. Oh my goodness. I know how much I need prayer and I know how often I'm in over my head trying to figure out how to fulfill 
God's call to make disciples and love people and share the gospel in the settings I'm in. And I know how incredibly valuable those emails are when I send something out and somebody responds and says, man, we're praying for you and we're we want to encourage you. Like, I know, and, I, and frankly, I know that I couldn't be in Chicago if I wasn't supported by churches like this one and people around the country. But I'm also convinced that the best thing that could happen for my ministry is not for you to become so focused on Chicago and all of the rest of the world that that, that that was the only passion of your church. That might work really well for me for a little while. But the reality of it is what is best for the church and best for the plan of God and best for the Great Commission is for you all to be busy making disciples here in Warsaw and being in prayer and fasting and worshiping so when the Holy Spirit does whisper in your ear and say, hey, uh, why don't you go on that short-term trip to Chicago that's coming up? Or why don't you send a letter to that missionary? Or maybe even for some of you, why don't you go to school and become a missionary? You hear the Holy Spirit and you follow. I've been warned by a friend who was, a, uh, was an executive director of a large mission agency that their mission is preparing for the Golden Cliff. The Golden Cliff is the fact that the vast, um, the vast majority of mission support comes from baby boomers and folks that are older. And those folks are retiring and their incomes are going down, and in some cases they're passing away, and mission agencies are saying, how are we going to survive if the next generation and the next generation isn't discipled to think about Great Commission stuff? And that happens not by being totally focused on what's going on in Chicago. That happens by getting, it's so fun watching the Overstreets and their girls and the way they're discipling their, their daughters to love Jesus. And I don't know what God has for any of them, where in the world God might send them. I'm not suggesting they'll all become missionaries. I'm not even become missionaries. They may just be moms that disciple their kids and, and fulfill the Great Commission that way. But it is so important to see churches making disciples of young people. So the church stays strong as, as leaders slowly, you know, go to glory in their ministries and go to glory. And as God moves people around, and sometimes again, job transfer takes a leader out, and who's going to fill that role? It's all about the disciples that are made here. And I'm totally confident that if you guys were just totally passionate about making disciples in Warsaw, I wouldn't have to worry that I'd be forgotten in Chicago. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let that happen. And many of your other missionaries, they wouldn't be forgotten around the world. So, it sounds counterintuitive. Many of you are probably not called to go, you're called to stay. But make disciples. That's, the key is not going, the key is making disciples. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for this church and the opportunities I had when I was here to learn about making disciples in the children's program and from the staff that were here then. And thank you for the opportunities you gave me when I was in seminary to learn about making disciples. But Lord, I know um, the, the world is too large to be reached only by professional missionaries. The world needs to be reached by every believer taking the command to make disciples seriously anywhere, everywhere, starting where they are and staying there until you move them somewhere else. And I pray this church would be passionate 
about raising up young people who are disciples, about reaching out to their neighbors and introducing them to Jesus, and about building your kingdom right here in Warsaw. And I pray that we would be excited as we watch the ripples from that reach around the world through the people that go out from here, through the missionaries they support, and through the power of your Holy Spirit and as they take up the role that you've called them to. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. Thank you, John, for reminding us of so many things that over the years, and I, like you, uh, always thought about the missionaries that went to Africa and South America and went to all those places, met them, went to school with them. And yet, as I even talked to foreign missions, I ended up staying at home, traveling, singing. Wasn't what I thought, but I think what the Lord wants more than anything else is for us to just be faithful. Just be faithful. Be faithful to the commission, and that is to make disciples. We've been called to send. We've been called to take that light that we've been given and through that spread it throughout the entire nation. So stand with me. We're going to sing an old, to me, a mission song. There's a call comes ringing o'er the restless way. Send the light, send the light. There are souls to rescue, souls to save. Send the light, oh, send the light. Let us pray that grace may everywhere be found. Send the light, send the light. And a Christ-like spirit everywhere be found. Send the light. Send the light, send the light, the blessed gospel light. Let it shine from shore to shore. Send the light, the blessed gospel light. Let it shine forevermore. Let us not grow weary in the work of love. Send the light, send the light. Let us gather jewels for the crown above. Send the light, send the light. Send the light, the blessed gospel light. Let it shine from shore to shore. Send the light. The blessed gospel light, let it shine forevermore. Send the light, the blessed gospel light, let it shine from 